been enjoying going through Acts, um, and I've been enjoying the way it's got that constant focus on the gospel going out, and today is no exceptions. And as I was thinking about Acts chapter 10, we're looking at Acts chapter 10 and a little bit of chapter 11, so if you haven't got Bibles, you might want to grab one. There's some ESV Bibles over there, uh, otherwise feel to flick to it onto your, on your, onto your device. There's a bit of ground to cover, um, but I'll, I'll more be talking through the narrative with you rather than going word by word through the text and then sort of signposting into key verses along the way so you can keep up. But as I've been going through Acts chapter 10, Louis chapter 11, um, the one thing that occurred to me really is that sometimes we just need to have our eyes open a little bit. And I'll give you an example. In my household, uh, I often laugh to myself when we order pizza. And it's because Caleb, who's my eldest son, we usually order Hawaiian because it's pretty neutral um, sort of pizza, uh, and it's only got two ingredients, really, ham and pineapple, but he feels compelled to pick off each bit of pineapple before he eats it. And I think a lot of you probably know those kids, don't you? There's only two ingredients, but one of them has to go before they indulge in the pizza. And a lot of fathers there or brothers are probably going, yeah, that is annoying. That is really annoying. But for me, I kind of laugh inside because I know that back in the day, I was one of those kids that picked pineapple off my Hawaiian pizza as well. Regularly, I'd get a piece that was in front of me and I'd dissect it until every element of that fruit was gone and therefore it was safe to consume. And I'd go for it. It was acceptable, an acceptable offering at that point. But then there was one day that my world changed and I was presented with this piece of Hawaiian pizza or tropical pizza, whatever you want to call it. And maybe it was the pressure that was around me at the time. You could look to your right, left, look to your right, think. Don't think that many people are watching. And you plunge in, you take a bite. And it wasn't that bad. <laughs> and ever since that time, pineapple has been. I just had to face the constant ridicule that came from my family about my sudden conversion to pineapple. Now, sometimes I think we need to have our eyes open a, bit, a little bit. And sometimes opening our eyes requires a bit of a step of faith. And today as we go through the passage, we see people's eyes are opened. And that process of opening their eyes required them to take a leap of faith. It required them to be bold in some way and to follow what God had been saying to them. And their understanding and experience of God radically expanded because of what they see in Acts chapter 10 and 11. Now we're going to look at this passage because it involves a person called Cornelius. And Cornelius was a Roman centurion, which we'll talk about more in a second. And he sends out... Um, to a Jew in Peter, and he tells Peter to come to him. Peter shares with them the gospel, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, because of that, this passage is often referred to as the conversion of Cornelius. But as I was, as I was reading around um, some of the background for these chapters, a well-respected author called John Stott uh, actually made the comment that in his mind, Acts chapter 10 is more about the conversion of Peter than it is about the conversion of Cornelius. Now, by that, he wasn't talking about salvation. This isn't the point in Peter's life where he came to know Christ. He's talking about the fact that Acts chapter 10 represents a point in time and a point in Peter's life where he was effectively told to radically rethink everything that he knew about what was clean and unclean in God's eyes. It was a point in time where he had to radically rethink his understanding of God and what the gospel, which he had been so passionately preaching about, really meant and the extent to which that gospel had expanded. This was the passage where Peter's eyes were open to the true nature and the true extent of the gospel. And so today, as we unpack it this morning, 
My prayer is that we'll start to see not just how God wanted to open Peter's eyes, but how he might want to open our eyes in the same way, so that we start to see and live the gospel in the way that God intended it to be seen and lived. So Acts chapter 10, and like I said, I won't go verse by verse, I won't read it all out, I'll just give you the narrative as it unfolds, and I'll point you to the key verses along the way. You know, it starts, obviously, in verse 1, we meet this person called Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is described as a Roman centurion, uh, a member of the Italian cohort. Now, what does that mean? It means, firstly, he's Roman, he's not a Jew. Secondly, he's centurion. Now, a centurion was a high-ranking officer in the Roman army, and they were generally uh, viewed on as the most loyal to the Roman Empire. Now, because of their allegiance to the Roman Empire, they were therefore hated by most Jews because the Romans had obviously oppressed and conquered the Jews. And these were the, the symbols, if you like, of the power and might and the, and the authority of the Roman Empire. But equally, on the other side, the centurions would generally hate the Jews because they'd see them as traditional, a strange traditional nation um, which generally kept to themselves and were ultimately far inferior to the Roman Empire which had conquered them. That was the general dynamic between the two of them. But yet in, in the first few verses of chapter 10 of Acts, he, this centurion, Cornelius, is described as a devout man who feared God with all his household. And he gave generously to the people around him and he prayed continually to the God of the Jews. Now, this put Cornelius in a unique category. It put Cornelius in a category of people which, despite his, um, his position and status within Rome, he was sympathetic to the Jewish nation and had some sort of relationship with the Jewish God. Indeed, he prayed to the Jewish God and he feared the Jewish God, but he'd stopped short of becoming a full Jew, if you like, by circumcision and various other processes that would have been involved in being accepted as a true Jew. So he's still Roman, but there's an element of sympathy towards the Jewish nation and their God. And the narrative starts, it says, in the ninth hour of the day. That breaks down to around 3 p.m. It's the middle of the afternoon. And Cornelius receives a vision. And it says that he has a vision of an angel standing in front of him that calls him by name. It says, Cornelius. And the passage says that Cornelius is terrified, as you would be. It's the middle of the afternoon. And you just had a vision of an angel from God in front of you who is calling you by name. I would be terrified too. That's an unusual event, particularly for a Roman. But the angel goes on to say, Cornelius, I want you to send some people to a place called Joppa to get Peter and to bring him back. He wants to send people to a Jewish household to bring a Jew back to a Gentile one. Now, Cornelius might not have even known who Peter was. He might have, because Peter was getting well-known by this point in time. But he must have had all sorts of thoughts going through his head at this point. Is this angel for real? I, am I just dreaming stuff up here? Is this seriously God communicating directly to me? And why would he send me to... Why should I send anyone to Peter's house when there's no chance Peter's going to come back anyway? Because Jews shouldn't associate with Gentiles in any way, shape, or form. You know, that's the way our mind works after all, isn't it? You know, God might speak to our hearts, but often our response is to question, to rationalize, to challenge, so that we can eventually convince ourselves that that couldn't really have been God speaking to me at that point in time. 
That couldn't really have been God knocking at the door of my heart. But what we see in the response to Cornelius is there's none of that. There's no hesitation. There's no challenging this vision or questioning it. There's no rationalizing it. He just calls together some servants and he pulls together one of the soldiers, which was under his commands, to send them as an, as an escort, and he sends them off to Joppa. Despite those guys thinking Cornelius probably well have been a bit of a lunatic, not sure why he's asked me to do this, but Cornelius just says, this is what's happened, so you need to go. Now, there's two principles here which I think are worth reflecting on right from the outset. And they're worth reflecting on from the outset because... They, set, they establish themes which I think run all the way through Acts chapter 10 into chapter 11 and indeed through much of Acts. The first of those is that God is at work. You can't deny that when you look at chapter 10, particularly as it unfolds. God is clearly orchestrating these events. God is the one who initiated contact with um, Cornelius. God is the one who gave him the vision of the angel. God is the one who instructed him to go to Peter. And as we read in a second, God is the one who around the same time is giving a similar, sorry, a completely different but critically important vision to Peter. God is orchestrating all of these events because God is clearly at work. He is clearly in total control of what is happening. And he has a passion to make himself known to his people. This reminds us that the God that we believe in and worship is living and is active and he wants to make himself known. And that truth ultimately permeates through the whole Bible. Because at the beginning there was God... God made man, and they were together because man was creating God's image. But then that relationship was fractured because of sin. It was broken. And ever since that time, God has been at work to make himself known and to make that relationship restored. And that was the whole purpose for Jesus Christ, that he would come and bring restoration of that relationship once and for all. That is part of God's salvation plan that he has been working at right from day dot when sin interrupted the relationship that was meant to be in place. And we see this element of God being at work when Jesus spoke to Peter himself in Matthew and he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will do this work and I will see this work through to completion. I'm doing it. Cornelius wasn't going to do it. Peter, as great as he was, wasn't the one who's going to build the church. Jesus is saying, this is God's work. He is at work. He is living and active, and he's going to make it happen. And we see that in Acts chapter 10. He's initiating. He's making the instructions. He's given visions to multiple people, all working together. He's orchestrating the events. He is going to see his work through to completion, and he is going to make his self known to his people. You know, when we see the spread of the gospel or people's belief in Jesus Christ as somehow resting on our shoulders and resting on our abilities, I think we're missing the point. You know, when, I, when, when we start to believe that our effectiveness for God hinges on how articulate we are or how persuasive our arguments are or how amazing we are as a person, I think we're missing the point. Because God is the one who's ultimately in control, isn't he? God is the one who's at work. God is the one who is building the church. And this is his work. The work of salvation is his work. It's not ours. And we see that in Acts chapter 10. He's the one that's doing it. But what he's looking for us, what he's looking from from us is a faithful servant, isn't he? And that's what he finds in Cornelius. 
God's going to make this happen, but what he finds in Cornelius is someone who, when God says, you need to go, as bizarre and weird an instruction as that would have been to him, he just goes. Because he's a faithful servant of whatever God wanted him to do. He's looking for people who are willing to take that step of faith so that their eyes might be open to their gospel. To take that step of faith in obedience to God, whatever that might look like. This is God's heart. He doesn't place responsibility for the salvation of mankind on our shoulders. That is his work. But he's looking for faithful servants who will get involved in sharing his message of the gospel and God's salvation plan to anyone who would listen. And may we as a church be that faithful servant. That's our call, isn't it? That we would be looking for where God is at work, that we'll be looking for what God is doing in our community, in our families and in our wider communities in which we work. We'd be looking for what God is doing in people's hearts and we, would look, and we would try to be the faithful servants that can get involved in that mission. And Cornelius does that. And as we see further on, Peter does it too. So Peter then, the, the scene switches around verse 9. That was Cornelius. Now, now, we can see from that, God is at work and he's looking for faithful servants. But next, the scene switches to Peter. And it goes from about verse 9 through to verse 33, if you're following along in the chapter. Now, Peter, it's his, it's his time to start praying now. So he goes to the roof to pray. Now, in those days, uh, the roofs are different from the roofs that you and I tend to have now. We're not talking like pointy tiled roofs where people are hanging awkwardly off the edge. They were generally flat roofs in those days. They were quite a common place for people to go to pray. Pray. So Peter does that. And then he has his own vision. God sends him a vision. His is very different, though. It has a very different purpose. So Peter's vision says he sees a sheet coming down from the heavens as filled with all different kinds of animals. And then a voice says to Peter, rise up, kill, and eat. Now, in and of itself, that vision doesn't sound particularly staggering. Ultimately, he's told to eat animals, which is a process those of us who are not vegetarians would do most days of the week. But for someone of Peter's background, for uh, culturally for Peter, this was quite a confusing and a confronting vision. See, the Jews had very particular food laws. There were very particular criteria about what was clean or deemed to be clean in God's eyes, which they could eat, and what was unclean in God's eyes. And you see the breakdown or summary of these principles in Leviticus chapter 11, where it says all these animals which have these sorts of characteristics, they're unclean, you're not to eat those. These animals, however, which have different characteristics, these are clean, you can therefore eat those. And it goes through general animals, it goes through birds, some of them you could eat, some of those you couldn't. Uh, ocean, uh, animals from the ocean, some of those you could, some of those you couldn't. Animals that crawled on the ground, some of them were clean, some of them were unclean, all the way through. And you see the overarching principle is actually summarized for us in Leviticus 20, verse 25, where it says, God says to his people, you shall therefore separate the clean beast or animal from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything which crawls on the ground, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. In other words, God's saying, if you ate unclean food, you would be deemed unclean. You would be detestable in God's eyes. And you would have to therefore go through this purification process in order to be made clean again. 
Now, it's clear in Peter's response in verse 14 that there were unclean animals in what was being presented to him in this vision, which he was therefore being told to eat. Because he says in verse 14, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. I can't do this. All my life I've eaten clean foods because that's what you have instructed me to eat. And now you're telling me to eat something unclean. I can't do that. That's against your law. And Peter receives a response from God that will resonate and shape his actions for the rest of chapter 10, into chapter 11, and indeed for the rest of the New Testament. Because God says to him in verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. I love that. In other words, if I'm telling you it's clean, if I'm telling you to eat it, don't you dare call it unclean. Now, that was a huge message for Peter to process in this point in his life. Because for the whole of his life, he had been trained to stay away from unclean things. Don't eat unclean foods. You're not allowed. And this, in, this included the life where he was with Jesus on earth as one of his disciples, remember? All of his life. I haven't eaten unclean things. Why should I do it now? God was asking Peter to completely reshape everything that he had been brought up and trained in to completely reshape his understanding of these Levitical, Levitical laws and particularly what was clean and unclean in God's eyes. All of a sudden, he was being commanded by God to eat the unclean. Now, you all might be saying, well... You're making a pretty big deal out of this. I mean, in 2016, it's hard to appreciate this. And you might think, well, really? It was, was it that significant a moment for him? Was God really flipping around his understanding of God that much? I think you get an indication of that by the fact that Peter had to get this vision three times. How many other visions do you know people had to get three times? Cornelius didn't get his vision three times. That was enough for him to go. But for this one, for Peter, once wasn't enough. Had to get it again twice. Had to get it a third time, same vision, because this was reshaping. This was opening his eyes to a completely different understanding of what was clean and unclean in God's eyes. And at the end of the third time, you think, Peter must have got it now. You've seen the same thing three times in a row. But it says in verse 16 that he was inwardly perplexed. Couldn't get it. Couldn't wrap his head around this. This is a complete flipping around of my understanding of what is clean and unclean in God's eyes. I just, I don't get it, God. You can see that coming through. And as if God's got a sense of humor, right at that moment then, guess who's knocking at his gate? It's the Gentile cohort. Now, if anything epitomized unclean, it was the Gentiles. Because any nation other than the Jewish nation was pagan and therefore was not to be associated with. It was unclean. They had various Jewish laws say they're not associated with the Gentiles or any other nation. And so just at that point in time where God is shaking Peter's perception of what is clean and unclean and getting him to rethink that, a Gentile cohort arrives at his gate and says, let us in. Now, you can get the sense there's still hesitation here because in verses 19 to 20, it says that the Spirit of God says to Peter, go to them without hesitation and accompany them. It's trying to reassure them. Trust me, Peter. This is okay. You're going to be okay here. You've got to, it, it might feel unnatural and feel strange, but you've got to engage in this. Trust me. So he goes down. He takes a very significant step in verse 23. He invites them in as his guests. He doesn't leave them at the gate 
which would have been the traditional thing to do, he invites them in as his guests. That's his first step to separate himself from what the Jews traditionally thought to be right and true. He invites them in, and then he goes further. He actually returns with them to Caesarea to meet Cornelius. He doesn't just meet Cornelius, he meets his household and his community. He goes into his house, he eats with them, and spends time with them there. And you can see the fact that Peter feels as though he's really crossing boundaries here. Because in verse 28, Peter says to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with anyone of another nation. But, Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's a pivotal verse. You know it's unlawful for me to associate with any non-Jews, but God has told me not to call any person common or unclean. The message that God has been trying to open Peter's eyes to is that there should be no exclusions to the gospel. There should be no exclusions to the good news of Jesus Christ. No one, no matter what nation or tribe, no matter what language or past background, no matter what gender or race, no matter what religion or profession, no one should be excluded from the opportunity to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the gospel. That's what he's trying to open Peter's eyes to. Don't think this message is just for you. This message is for everyone. For God's salvation is for all. The work that Jesus achieved on the cross was complete in all respects. It was for Jerusalem, it was for Samaria, it was for the ends of the earth. You remember the promise God gave to Abraham in Genesis? Genesis 22 says, Through your seed all nations will be blessed. In other words, he was saying to Abraham, through your line of descendants, someone would come which would bring a blessing that would flow to every nation. And we know now that that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who came through the line of Abraham and through his death on the cross, that relationship could be restored. God could make himself known to his people and that blessing of life and forgiveness and salvation that was for all nations. Through your seed, all nations will be blessed. And you see this come up again in John the Baptist. John the Baptist was approached by Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, because Jesus wanted to be baptized. And when John saw him, he's like, Behold, the Lamb of God. Pointing to the fact that Jesus was going to be the one who would pay the sacrifice that we deserve to pay. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Every nation who takes it away, it was through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. He was the ultimate act of cleansing on the cross, wasn't he? He was the ultimate act by which all of us who are made unclean by the sin that's so ingrained into our hearts and our nature, he was the one, through Jesus alone, the unclean could be made clean. But it's only through Jesus. And God says to Peter, don't start thinking about what's unclean or clean based on what's written in the law. Start thinking about it in terms of what's in the heart. And remember, Jesus came to change hearts. And he came to change every single person's heart. He came to make himself known to his people. And then Peter finds himself right in front of this captive audience of Gentiles. 
who said to Peter, God's brought you here so that we could hear what you have to say to us. He's got this open platform for the gospel. And you can see God's preparing him, saying, don't hold that back from these people. Don't withhold the gospel from them. Because I want to change their hearts just like I've changed yours. I want to capture your heart just like, I want to capture their hearts just like I've captured yours. I want to offer them forgiveness and grace and salvation just like you yourself have experienced. And so they're standing in front of, sitting, standing, whatever in front of Peter and saying, tell us what God's got to say. What a forum, what a platform. You know, I think we can be so quick to draw lines of division when it comes to the gospel. We can be so quick to form views about who might, who's in and who's out, or who might listen to uh, things about Jesus and who might not, who might have a soft heart to God and who might have a hardened heart to God. We make those assumptions all the time. I know at work, I work in the professional services, and I'm around a lot of people who are very well off, very successful, very comfortable with their life here. And I know I fall in the trap of having these artificial lines of distinction where I think, you know what, they're not going to be interested in spiritual things. They're not interested in Jesus. You know, as usual, in the years I've been there, up the corridor, I found, or founding, um, there's a wife of a pastor there. Around another corner, there's a Jehovah's Witness. Around one of my best mates in that work, wants to talk all the time about God. You know, you can get whatever communities we might be circling in, whatever workplaces we're in, whatever family situations we're in, there are always willing listeners for the gospel. There are. They're always there. And here God's shaking Peter's cage saying, don't withhold this message from anyone. You've just got to be willing to take a step of faith so that I can use you for the gospel. Because for Peter, the Gentiles would have been the last people on earth who would have been interested in the gospel. They would be the last people on earth, a pagan nation, an unclean people. They're the last people whose hearts would have been captured for the gospel. But God's saying, there's no exclusions to the gospel in my economy. Jesus' work was the ultimate work, the complete work, the ones that for all sacrifice that was for the salvation of all, no matter what tribe or tongue, no matter whether it's Australia, no matter whether it's Europe, no matter whether it's Canada, doesn't matter where you're from, the salvation of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ is for all, isn't it? It's for all. And Peter's eyes are being opened to that for the first time because their view of the gospel had been this big. God's saying it's this big. How big is our view of the gospel? It's easy for us to look back and go, oh, how blind Peter was. He was just waiting this time, had to come eventually. But how narrow is our view of the gospel? And the power that's there. Our God is at work. He wants wants to make himself known, but he's looking for faithful servants who will take his message of the gospel and of God's salvation plan to everyone who would listen. So Peter then finds himself in front of this gathering of Gentiles. And this is from verse 34 through to verse 48. And he shares with them the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And he, he, he talks about the fact that he was a son of God who was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He talks about the fact that he uh, demonstrated through amazing works power over Satan. And he talks about the fact that he was crucified on the cross and three days later he rose again until you get this fantastic summary in verse 43 where Peter says, To him, being Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes... In him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Do you get the inclusiveness of that statement? Everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And what we see then is that therefore Jesus is the ultimate cleansing uh, person and his work on the cross was the cleansing work by which everyone who is unclean through their sin can be made clean. And what we see then in verse 44 to 48 is pivotal. And there's been so much said about these verses, there's so much controversy around it, it blinds us and totally distracts us from the power and what's really going on in Acts chapter 10. See, for these people to keep getting their head around the fact that the Gentiles could receive the gospel, they needed, it needed to be in front of them. You can see that with Peter. He needed a vision three times and he still wasn't getting it. He dragged him in front of Gentiles and Gentiles they said, tell them the gospel. So he did. And as a result of that, you can see that the Holy Spirit comes down them and they start speaking in tongues. But God was demonstrating here, he was opening the eyes, not just of Peter, but of all the other Jews around him. And Peter turns them and says, you can see that they've received the gospel the same way we did on the day of Pentecost. They're demonstrating all the work of the Holy Spirit that we observe. So how can we deny them baptism and inclusion in the gospel? How can we deny them the inclusion in the church? Look at what you're seeing. That's what this chapter is about. It's about the fact of God demonstrating again and again and again that his plan of salvation is for everyone. And he's showing everyone now through their reception of the whole, for the Gentiles, reception of the Holy Spirit, that the gospel had come for the salvation of the world. And everyone looked around, they see these people speak in tongues, they've clearly received the Holy Spirit, and they baptize them. They said, you know what? The gospel has to be for them. Jesus has captured their hearts and he's changed them. How can we not baptize them? You know, the thing that strikes me over and over again as I go through that last section is the simplicity with which the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. You know, they didn't go through any purification process because that purification process was completed on the cross. They didn't do any works or, or undertake anything to try and make them worthy because the only work that was required was the completed work on the cross. They didn't go through education to try and get up to speed on God and everything that they, had, that they should know because all they needed to know was Jesus Christ crucified. And they believed and they had faith and they were saved. Simple as that. Sometimes we overcomplicate the gospel, don't we? But the simplicity here is striking. It was all done on the cross through Jesus. And now they just needed to believe. All they needed, all God wanted from them was faith. That's it. God's only requirement is faith. That's the incredible truth that we see in Acts 10 and Acts 11 and through, that the unclean can be made clean through faith. And we're all unclean, aren't we? Every single one of us. You look in our hearts for about five seconds, you see how unclean we are. But the unclean, no matter how unclean, can be made clean through Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone. It's not about what we do. It's not about being perfect people or having a perfect track record. 
It's about the fact that the perfect person died on a cross. And that through him and him alone, we know salvation. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There's a verse I think I trot out every single time I'm up the front. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes shall not perish, have everlasting life. One requirement, one step, and it's just a step of faith. That's it. Sometimes we can overcomplicate the gospel. It doesn't matter how unclean your heart might be or how unworthy right now you might feel before God. It doesn't matter how hardened you might think your neighbours or your family members or your communities are. It doesn't matter how distant or removed from spiritual things you might think they are. No one should be excluded from the good news of the gospel. And all that God requires from anyone, you or I or anyone around us, is faith. That's it. And that's not beyond the reach of anyone. That's not out of reach of anyone. It's a gift of God that he is at work doing, that he is making himself known, and all he wants is faithful servants who can get involved in that mission. Our purpose in vision in, in 2016 was to make Christ known. That was meant to be the whole point of this series. That's the whole point of where we're going as a church, that we will make Christ known. Now we know that God will make himself known, but are we going to be the faithful servants that do that? Are we going to partner in that mission so that we can see what God is willing to do and the way he can capture people's hearts and change their lives so that they move from death to life, from sin to righteousness, from unclean to clean, from dead to eternal life? You know, Peter and the wider Jewish community here were obviously struck by what was happening in chapter 10. So Peter gets hall before a tribunal or Jewish council in, in chapter 11. Gets wrapped over the knuckles. He's saying, you're associating with Gentiles. You shouldn't be doing that. You ate with them. What are you doing? It's against all of our laws. Not all of them. A particular law. And so Peter recounts what's gone on. He tells them everything that's happened. He relays about his vision. He tells them about what's happened with Cornelius and explains about the way they had received the Holy Spirit. And I love the way it all breaks down in verse 18. It says they responded like this. When they heard these things, they fell silent. It's like this shock almost. The gravity of what had just happened struck them. They fell silent. But they didn't stay silent. They turned that silence into glory. It says they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Amen? That's the reason we're all here. We're all Gentiles. But to the Gentiles... Oh, we may not... I think we're all Gentiles. <laughs> That's an assumption. But to the Gentiles also, and to the Jews, God has granted repentance. When we turn back to God through faith in Jesus Christ, and that repentance leads to life. And that life can never be taken away from us, no matter what happens. Circumstances can change. Things can get really tough. But that life is called eternal life for a reason. Because we have it now, and we will have it 
forever. Life with a God that knows no end. Life with our creator God that can't be found anywhere else because there is only one creator God. To the Gentiles also, he is granted repentance that leads to life. God is at work. He is building his church, isn't he? He is living, he is active, and he wants to make himself known. His salvation is therefore offered to all who would listen. There are no exclusions to the good news of Jesus Christ. There are no lines of distinction. There are no divisions. There's no artificial assumptions. The good news is intended to be for everyone. But he's, and his only requirement is faith. He wants faith from us. He asks faith for our community. And in us, he just wants a faithful servant who will go out and share about the truth of what God's done. You know, in Acts 9, God opened the eyes of Saul on the road to Damascus, didn't he? He blinded him, but then he opened them again to the truth of the gospel. In Acts 10, he opens the eyes of Peter. Two pinnacles of the New Testament. Paul in chapter 9, now in chapter 10, Peter's eyes are getting opened. My prayer is that through this, our eyes will get opened too. So that we can start to grab hold of the true reach of the gospel. And so that we can start to see and live the gospel the way God intended it to be seen and lived. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we've seen here in Acts 10. We thank you for the fact that you rattled our cage and opened us to the, open our eyes to the fact that your good news of Jesus Christ is for all who would listen. Lord, we thank you that your salvation is for all who would have faith. Lord, we thank you that you are at work, that you are wanting to make yourself known to your people and that we can engage in that mission and be part of it. Lord, what a gift of grace you have offered us through Jesus, who is the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. Lord, may we never shy away from sharing that message. May we never make assumptions that people aren't interested in that message. May we never overcomplicate the gospel by taking it away from that simple truth that it's about faith and faith alone in the Son of God who was crucified as the Lamb of God but rose again three days later so that we could have life eternal so that through repentance it could lead to life that would never perish, spoil, or fade. Lord, we praise you for these and we ask that it will capture our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.